I've entitled the morning's message, Spiritual Peer Pressure. And um, it is at the end of the Lord's ministry. As we look at verse 636, as he's talking about him being with them a little longer. Actually, the little longer, when we get to verse 36, He says, these things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Jesus now withdraws from this and ends his public ministry. He will never again publicly appear until he comes to this earth to establish his kingdom. And so what we have here is, um, as we're going to see with Paul and Timothy, some of us final words of ministry that he's going to be speaking a little bit at the end of this chapter. And um, uh, if you go back to chapter 12, verse um, 10 and 11, we're in that section. Section 12 ends the largest section of the Gospel of John where it's titled The Opposition Against Him. And we see it here in verse 10 of chapter 12. The chief priest took counsel that they might also put Lazarus to death because on account of him, many of the Jews went and believed on him. Now, one of the reasons for the crowds, the next verse, it says the next day we have the triumphal entry. But one of the reasons they were there for Passover, but they were also there because just the day before, Lazarus, who was dead, is now very much alive. And the word had gotten out. And so we have the triumphal entry beginning in verse 12. But the multitudes that were there telling us because Lazarus, they knew he was dead, but now he's alive. Then we read uh, in verse 42 and 43 of chapter 12, talking about the Jews uh, that they wouldn't believe the Lord when he came, says, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they be put out of the synagogue, for they love the praises of men more than the praises of God. Now, the reason I call this spiritual peer pressure is because that's exactly what's happening here. They believe Jesus because of the resurrection of Lazarus, was indeed the Messiah. But they wouldn't confess it. Because if they confessed it, that means they would be kicked out of the synagogue. Remember, the religious leaders not only wanted to kill Jesus, but now they want to kill Lazarus too. So they're put in a position of pressure. I call it spiritual peer pressure. Everybody understands what peer pressure is, right? Remember the first time you were ever involved with peer pressure? I remember mine. It was February 1964, sitting on a rug in our family living room. I watched the Ed Sullivan Show and the Beatles' first performance. My dad was a barber. (laughs) And I had a flat top. Everybody over 60, you remember what flat tops are? Then you have to have a special brush 
and butch wax. Don't forget the butch wax so they could stay up. Well, these four lads from Liverpool with their mop-top long hair and their yeah, 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 I began the next day to grow my hair long. I got, I had the album memorized within a week. I got three of my best friends and we, out of cardboard, cut out electric guitars, painted them white. We only needed three because Ringo, remember, was a drummer. And um, I was in grade school and then those times in grade school, we remember what when they had show and tell? Well, I thought we'd try something a little bit different. So I brought my 45 record player along with um, 245, She Loves You, and All My Lovin', and we mouthed the words to our entire grade school class. Well, everybody knew who the Beatles were, and just like the Beatles, the girls went crazy. Our problem was we had flat tops, and how in the world could we get that down And thus became the ongoing debate in the Doval family for many years. My dad, who was very much a singer, a very good one, competed nationally, but barbershop quartet. That was his music. So he would say, they'll last a month. That's his famous words. Until the day he went to be home with the Lord, I would never let him forget. I said, Dad, the Beatles are on. On, on the radio right right now. Remember what she said in 1964? What is, the, what is that? That's peer pressure. It's having such an impact on a life that now I'm going to grow my hair long. And um, uh, the influence and, and always the love for music. But uh, that's what peer pre- pressure is on a physical level. And today, um, as we look at our text, I'm taking it from a physical level, but as I, over the last, oh, 20 years, I've noticed a spiritual peer pressure taking place in the church. And this morning, I would like at, I'd like to look at the spiritual peer pressure that exists and is predicted to exist in the last days. So I want you to start by turning to the book of Revelation chapter three, and I wanna particularly look at the last church, there's seven churches here. The key to the book of Revelation is Revelation chapter one, verse 19. The Lord told John to write the things that he saw, write the things that are, and write the things that will be. And you have the division of the book of Revelation. Seven letters to seven churches. And I believe the last one here particularly pertains to the church in the last days. And especially the church as it exists in America. I'm picking it up in verse 14 of chapter three. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. 
Because you say, I am rich, I've become wealthy, I've need of nothing, and you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. For as many as I love, I rebuke and chastise, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him. Let me just stop here. This church had a perception of themselves. Their perception, I would tie into what we call the prosperity doctrine today or the name it and claim it groups where God's desire for you is health and wealth. It's a sign that you're being blessed by God because you're prospering in this way. That was their perception. The Lord said, um, just to put it in perspective a little bit, it was either Wednesday night or last Sunday, I pulled out how all the disciples died according to Fox's Book of Martyrs. Jesus said, birds have nests, foxes have its holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Every one of the disciples, without exception, were martyred. Either speared through, head cut off, um, uh, crucified, they all died horrible deaths except for John because the Lord wanted John around to be able to pen this particular book. But my point is, the Lord's not even in this church. When he says, I counsel you to buy gold refined in the fire, when we read Peter, Peter likens our trials, our testings, our faith as gold that's refined in fire. These guys weren't going through trials. They, they had it made. And so he's trying to give them the Jesus lifestyle that they were definitely not a part of. So he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Where is the Lord in this church? Not in it. He's trying to get in it. He's out of it. He's knocking at the door. And he loves them. And he, because he loves them, he wants to correct them. And he's basically saying, this is not representing me, nor is it representing biblical Christianity. But then he encourages them in 21, but he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down on my father's throne. And then he says this, if you have ears to hear, then hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Now, where we're going this morning is moving away from being led by the Spirit. And when I say that, it goes with this verse right here. If you have ears to hear, this is spiritually speaking, versus what man would say as it views growth in the Christian community. Now I'm gonna apply this two ways. I'm gonna apply it socially, politically, and in the church as we're seeing a transformation. And how one particular group is trying to make its inroads into the church of Jesus Christ. 
So their perception of themselves was one thing and the Lord's perception was another one. And he gives them counsel. He rebukes them. He says because he loves them. All right, with that, let's go back to John 4, John chapter 12 and look at verse 42 again. Verse 42 and 43, they believed in Jesus, but they couldn't confess him. Um, The reason that they could not confess him is they were under a peer pressure in so doing that they would be put out of the synagogue. Today we see this spiritual peer pressure on uh, getting into the church by conforming to this world, um, this peer pressure. And many in our own Fox Cities here, many, a once solid Bible-believing church has been influenced to leave their once solid biblical foundation to become more relevant, is the terminology, to our society for the sake of having more people attend their church and and have actually more money coming in to the church. Um, I thought of how can we get this across in a manner, you ever hear the expression, uh, one picture can describe a thousand words? Let me show you one this morning. I'm gonna put it up on the screen and I'll read it for you once it's up there. Oh, tired of the same old Christianity? Try progressive. Why continue to swallow the stale state of the historic faith when you can try something new and different? Our theological soup is loaded with exciting extra biblical ingredients and spices from the East to fortify your spiritual journey. Frankly, we don't know what's in this stuff, but that's what makes it so mysterious and yummy. Progressive, creamy theological soup. I couldn't resist. But that's exactly what is happening. It can take, I could, um, I'm going to be naming names this morning. Um, the ones that I th- think have been most instrumental. Uh, there's many that I could, the, the list um, um, will not be full, but I'll, I'll give you the main ones out there that are not only having this influence, but the people that have caused the influence to cause these churches to leave sound biblical teaching and gravitate towards what I call the social gospel. The other terminology is um, progressive Christianity. That's the terminology that they're putting on. Progressive Christianity. And one of the most influential churches is Willow Creek, started by Bill Heibel in the early 80s, along with Rick Warren out of Saddleback, out of Southern California. Both of these men were greatly influenced by a man whose name is Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker is not a Christian. Uh, he is a well-known, what I call a guru to many CEOs 
uh, of corporations across the country. Um, and his purpose is to develop growth in their corporations. In other words, they bring him in, and when they have their annual end of the year meetings for projections for next year, he's the guy to look to. So you, they sit down at the table, projections for next year, 15 to 20%. That's what we want. Peter Drucker's there to show him how to do it. He's extremely successful and sought after. He wanted to bring his um, philosophy, if you want to call it that, into developing church growth, but doing it his way. Now, mind you, he is not a believer. Peter Drucker is not saved. Uh, He's been successful in, in infiltrating especially Willow Creek and Saddleback. Um, I pulled this off the internet this week. That movement under the name Church Growth was uh, started independently in 1950 by Pastor Robert Schuler of the Crystal Cathedral fame and seminary professor Donald McGavern. The church growth movement focused on identifying sociological factors which attract people to or repel them from churches and promoting the knowledge of these factors. And let me just stop right here. The idea is take away that which is negative which would turn people off. Well, what would turn people off? Talking about sin, repentance, moral lifestyles, um, that would certainly make people feel uncomfortable. Well, what would make them feel good? Well, tell them that God wants the very best for their life, that they can be happy and healthy and wealthy and wise and never get sick. Eliminate the bad, accentuate the positive. And you know what? It works. In the 1980s, Peter Drucker gave a Profound boost to the movement by choosing evangelical leaders Rick Warren and Bill Hybels and Bob Buford and mentoring them in the application of his management theories to church government. The seeker-sensitive pastor added Drucker's marketing and organization management genius to the basic church growth game plan using secular wisdom to increase the size of an organization. We... Um, Bill Hybels basically went door to door with a bunch of people and asked them, what would you like to see in a church? And um, what wouldn't you like to see in a church? And um, they grew from nothing to one of the most influential, and I want to interject the word, spiritual peer pressure because of their success um, in churches in America today. They started with one. There are now 529. I think I have paperwork here. You guys can Google this just as easy as I can to find out how many there are. There are now 529 other churches who have joined onto the Willow Creek as member churches. Now, it's one thing you say you associate with them but it's another thing to be a member of them. It costs you $300 annually a year to be a member 
of Willow Creek. Um, nationwide, I'll get to it uh, worldwide, that number goes up to 13,000, over 60 different nations, and um, there's another stat there, but I'll get to that because it's farther on in my notes. What they do is they host an annual leadership conference. Uh, Saddleback can seat 7,000 people in Willow Creek. Then they have over 500 of these member churches that for only $139, you can come in and sit in a pew and you can watch it. Instead of being in Willow Creek, you can watch it from one of them. I want you to start adding up the numbers here because it's $300 to be a member, but it's also $300 just to get into the conference. And now you have 13,000 of them worldwide, 529 in the States. And just to go and sit in a pew and watch it from where yours is, that's only $139. What a deal. So most of the speakers at these leadership conferences are not Christians, but business leaders. This year's particular lineup uh, includes uh, part of the leadership conference. Uh, and, and there's only two of them that I, this year that I could find that were pastors. I'll mention one of them. But the other ones that are there that are going to be speaking, one guy's name is Roy Vandren. He's a co-founder of Brand Builders Group. Amy Edmondson, uh, professor of leadership management at Harvard Business School. She's an author. Uh, Marcus Buckingham, uh, best-selling author, a global researcher. Then we have Beth Comstack. Uh, she was um, former CEO, former president of Integrated Media at NBC Universal. One of the pastors here is T.D. Jakes, senior pastor, global recognized influencer. He's the best-selling author. Let me just give you a little background on T.D. Uh, he is associated with several troublesome teaching, teachings, including the popular uh, prosperity gospel and positive thinking. His teaching on the Trinity is also unbiblical. Jakes has long been associated with oneness Pentecostalism, which holds to the unorthodox position of the Trinity. This position is known as modelism. Modelism holds that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do not refer to distinct persons in the Godhead but to different modes of existence of a single person manifested in three ways. He also says that he thinks homosexuals should find congregations that affirm their lifestyle. Now, I can't tell you um, the number of pastors that over the years I've sat down to and asked them, why would you take your leadership that you're trying to raise up as leaders in your church to a Willow Creek um, leadership meeting when the people that are speaking don't even know Jesus. And especially when it comes to Rick Warren, whose approach is 
You need to be more purpose-driven, or in other words, have a social impact in the world rather than a biblical one. And um, I would get various answers. Some of the answers is, well, well, we just sort of pick and choose. If we hear something we like, we take that, and if we hear something we don't like, we don't like that. And my comment would be, but what kind of influence and impact are the people in the congregation getting if you're sending your leadership down to a conference when the people aren't even born again, they're simply CEOs, they're not raising up godly spiritual men and women, they're raising up business people who have business skills. Don't misunderstand me, I'm not knocking people in the business world that are trying to be successful. I think you should do the best. I think that a Christian should be the best worker whatever job you're doing for no other reason because you're a Christian. But I don't want to be mentored by somebody who doesn't know Christ. Show me a guy like um, Dave Hunt. Show me a guy like Dave Erda McGee. Show me a guy like Chuck Smith. Men of these characters that have been in ministry for 40 years, who've gone through everything you can go through in ministry, through the good times, the hard times, and how they made it through it, or the, or the King Davids. Those are the guys I want to sit under. Now I want to know, how did the Lord get you through this? And how did the Lord get you through this? But it's all about the Lord. It's, not, it's spirit-led by the Spirit of God rather than the models of man. So I purposely chose this as one. There's so many directions the study could go in this morning as it pertains to peer pressure um, in the church. So I'm gonna leave Willow Creek right now and I'm going to go to one billion Roman Catholics in the world and I'm gonna have something put on the screen right now that um, there they are. Another form of spiritual peer pressure is coming out of the Roman Catholic Church. What you're looking at here is a video of religious leaders from around the world with uh, Pope Francis, and I'm just quoting now. A new, new video has just been released with Pope, Pope Francis very clearly expressed his belief that all of the major religions are different paths to the same God. He says that while people from various global faiths may be seeking God or meeting God in different ways, that it's important to keep in mind that we are all children of God. This is the most recent example that shows that the Pope has completely abandoned any notion that a relationship with God is available only through Jesus Christ. Good place for an amen. There is no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except he comes through me. Why is this happening? Because the Bible says in the last days there's gonna be a falling away. And in order for there to be a one world government and a one world religion, there has to, to be the dumbing down, the compromising. My question would be to the Pope at this time. Whatever happened to your doctrine that salvation can only be obtained through 
the Holy Roman Catholic Church. You can only have your sins forgiven while you're having Eucharist. And only the priest can, through transubstantiation, turn the wafer into the body and the the cup of wine into the blood of, of Christ. What happened to that absolute mandate that calls for salvation and unless you're a part of the Roman Catholic Church, sorry, do purgatory time or whatever till you get it figured out, but all of a sudden, acknowledging all these paths to God. Some who are born-again believers will not attend a solid Bible church. Now, I'm talking about Roman Catholics. Dwight, are you saying that Roman Catholics can't be saved? No. I know personally many Roman Catholics that are born-again Christians, but do not attend a biblically solid Bible-believing church. Why? I'll tell you why. Because they have family members who put spiritual peer pressure on them and saying, you know, you can talk about being born again in Jesus, that's just fine but you better not leave the church. Now we're talking about family members putting on peer pressure and saying, yeah, you can, you can believe what you want to. But remember, it's the only holy Roman Catholic church that you have to attend. And uh, when that is said, well, if we do that, there's gonna be a lot of trouble around the household, especially Thanksgiving time. And my answer to that is, Jesus says, don't think I've come to bring peace. I haven't come to bring peace. A man's enemy are gonna be those of his own household. There'll be a a father against his son-in-law, a son-in-law against a sister, and it'll be happening in the family. Don't think I've come to bring peace. Let me just pause for a moment and think that you're wanting to keep peace and everything happy and clappy so that everybody could get along. What statement are you making as a born-again Christian by attending a Roman Catholic church and then giving them a, a feeling of safety that, uh, that everything's okay, that you can be Roman Catholic and not be born again? What are the consequences when all is said and done when a person dies? Had a funeral yesterday. Spoon. Went to be with the Lord. Just like that, you never know. How many people have family that are born again, have family members who are not? What are you telling them by sitting in the pew in a Roman Catholic church? The most loving thing you can do is bring the sword and let them know, no matter who they are, that unless you're born again, you're not going to heaven. And it's not because I say so. Jesus was talking to a religious leader Nicodemus, when he said, Nick, you have to be born again. And he did it at nighttime. Nicodemus came at night. It was the first Nick at night ever. I had to lighten it up somehow. It's getting pretty heavy in here. But think it through. Every one of the disciples, we talked about this earlier in Fox's Book of Martyrs, it cost them their life but they wouldn't compromise. They didn't say, um, yeah, just be a good guy and 
God judges on a curve, and you'll probably make it if, if that's it, or stick to your Judaism. Paul, who was a Jew, he said, it's my heart's desire that my people would be saved, implying that they weren't. That his greatest desire as being a Jew, and if you were a Jew, you're automatically in, according to Judaism. And then the gospel came out. And it says, no, it's through Jesus Christ only. And so there's a lot of similarities that are there. This is what I call spiritual peer pressure on them, saying that they're still the only church. The gospel of Jesus Christ is being replaced with a social doctrine, is being replaced by what we call, again, you want to learn this terminology. Here's the wording, progressive Christianity. It's also being used in the political arena. I find it interesting that we have gone from a nationalist form of government to a globalist form of government that we see happening. And I was shocked to hear who is in first place in the Democratic side. Bernie Sanders. The leading socialist that, that I know of, period. And he's running number one right now. We've gone from a nationalist perspective to a socialist perspective. And, uh, and the, uh, uh, what's the right word? The effects of this have uh, trickled down to our younger people. And now they want everything handed to them on a plate instead of learning how to go out and get a job and work for what they have. It's called socialism. And um, it's amazing to see it happen not only politically, in the, but also in the church. And it's all headed towards two things, my friends. One is one world government, and one is a one world religion. And we're watching it happening right before our times. Uh, Mary wrote this up for me this week. And so you can have a better definition of what we're talking about. Social justice in the church. Also called progressive Christianity, which is a liberal, low view of the scriptures, found originally in liberal Protestant denominations, now has migrated to evangelicalism through a younger generation. Uh, Feelings are emphasized over facts. Essential Christian doctrines are open for interpretation. Historical terms are redefined and the heart of the gospel message shifts from sin and redemption to to social justice. Politics are emphasized. Prophecy is left out completely. Ecumenicalism is embraced due to a redefining of the word love. Oh, can't we all just get along and love one another? I don't know if I was going to tell, I wasn't going to tell the story in the first service, but it popped in my head. And it's the second service, and the game isn't on until 7, 5, 40. I got enough time to tell this story. I got a phone call from Warren Smith one time. And he said, uh, somebody just called me and said, Barry McGuire just threw my book in the, in the garbage. And I said, what? I said, Barry's going to be singing at our conference. 
I've known Barry McGuire since his 40th birthday in 1975. And um, I can't say that um, I'm a friend. I'm certainly not a friend anymore. Because Warren said, Dwight, you got, you got a guy coming to your conference who's a universalist. I said, Barry McGuire is not a universalist. Does everybody know? Who, young people, you don't know who I'm talking about, do you? You ever hear the song, Eve of Destruction? Yes, no? <laughs> I can see the old guys going, oh, yeah, of course. And young people going, huh? <laughs> it was a very, very big hit. And uh, he was part of the new Christie Minstrels. He was in the Broadway hit here. He's just plain famous. McGuinn and McGuire still getting higher in L.A. You know where that's at, mamas and papas. Boy, now I'm really getting sidetracked. <laughs> anyway, um, he's scheduled to do the music at our pastor's conference. And the uh, conference is called Staying the Course. And I call... Uh, Warren says, listen, uh, why don't you call him up and ask him? So I did. And I said, Barry, don't be offended, but I gotta ask you a question. I said, are you universalist or not? And he says, what's that? <laughs> he didn't even know. And I said, a universalist is a teaching that everybody eventually goes to heaven. And he says, well, Dwight, of course I believe that. And of course, my mouth dropped at that time when, when he said that. And I said, for one month straight, we emailed back and forth. I tried to take him through the scriptures. And he says, Dwight, here's the reason you don't get it. You don't have any kids. All you have is dogs, so you don't understand what's going on here. No loving father would ever send a person to hell, which a Basically means you get rid of this book and you replace it with your personal feelings and prejudices. And I said, Barry, I don't know how to tell you this, but I, I can't have you come to our conference. I first heard him sing in 1972 at Expo 72. He'd get up and sing about Jesus and cry like a little baby. I had no doubt this man loved the Lord. So I wondered where did he get off track and how did he get off track? from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We did a little research when I told him he couldn't come and he said, Dwight, all I wanna do is sing about Jesus. And I said, Barry, knowing what I know now, to allow you to come up here, knowing what I know, would be endorsing universalism, even if it's only I who, who knows it. I cannot give you that platform. And um, we haven't talked since. I've had other people that have tried to communicate with him. But I was curious, where, where did he get off track and how did he get off track? What we found out, that he was in a band with um, uh, Brian McLaren in Canada for seven years. Brian McLaren is the leader of his book, A Generous Orthodoxy. Now just think about that title, A Generous Orthodoxy. In other words, God is very, very broad and very, very open about all people going to heaven and the influence that this has had. Now this is just during my lifetime when where it started was with um, uh, people for the first 300 years, six million people were killed 
because they would not compromise with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, I'll go on with Mary's article. The phrase social justice is nonsensical and non-biblical. Justice, part of God's nature, pursues what is right according to an absolute impartial standard that does not change. What God says is right. It involves matters that impact every human. Social justice relentlessly pursues things that are subjectively seem to be lacking for some, things that some maybe already have and others want. Social justice affects only certain groups of humans, and so it follows that those who have something need to share it with those who do not. This is not biblical justice. Biblical justice is eternal. Social justice is temporal. Social justice is just socialism with a religious veneer. Progressive question tradition embrace diversity, climate change, uh, racial justice, practical social justice as the way to a collective salvation and leave the absolutes to someone else. Hmm. My Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I change not. He says you can't add, you can't take away a jot or a tittle without throwing off the inerrancy of this book. And you better not dare add one word to it or dare take away one word from it. And you know what that does for me? Puts me on a solid rock. I like absolutes. I like something that I can count on 100%, something that's never been wrong. I was challenged by a guy with Bible prophecy about proving that the Bible was the word of God. He says, go ahead, Dwight, try to find one prophecy that hasn't come true exactly as Jesus said. Can't be done. You know why? Because everyone has come true exactly the way the Lord has, has said it. Absolutes versus um, the socialism and if it's relative. That's the other word out there today. Well, that's what you believe, Dwight. That's relative. You believe your way, I'll believe my way. Advocates to what um, Mary just wrote on, she finishes it and she names some names. Red letter Christians are at the forefront. Who's the first one? Brian McLaren. Jim Wallace. Shane Claiborne, Tony Campolo, Philip Clayton, Francis Chan. I got a big problem with Francis Chan. And it's personal. And as long as I'm this fired up this morning, I might as well go all the way. We've had five families who've given our entire life to work for Gospel for Asia. And slowly and little by little, I watched a very solid I, entered, I was the first Calvary pastor to meet KP, and I introduced him to Chuck and many other Calvary Chapel pastors. Five families from here gave their whole life, um, collecting their own money from people who would support them to plant churches in India. Over the years, I saw a move from the gospel of Jesus Christ to a social gospel beginning to creep in. 
And then what happened was the unthinkable and the integrity uh, started to lack and today Gospel for Asia is a full-on cult. And I share those words um, with a broken, broken heart. And I wouldn't share them unless I got the facts directly from the people that are from this fellowship who told me directly that's the case. There were three Calvary Chapel pastors on the board when this all hit the fan. They all resigned. And who replaced them? Francis Chan replaced the board members for Gospel for Asia. I wasn't meaning to get sidetracked on that one either. But uh, to say the least, we, we're no longer supporters of, of uh, Gospel for Asia. Let's take it into uh, switching gears just a little bit and just something that happened this week. Um, I'm going to put a picture up on the screen of the Methodist Church. Now, this isn't two weeks ago. This is what's happening right now to show you how timely this is. What we have here in the article that I read is, this week's news is split taking place in the Methodist Church over an article that I read that half of them are wanting to support the gay-lesbian movement and have them be members of the Methodist Church, and the other half is saying no. And the debate was, which side is going to win? We don't know yet. But again, what do we have here? We have spiritual, pure pressure. Why? Because the gay-lesbian movement has been progressing over the years, not only influencing our society, but now creeping into the church to where the Methodists are split right down the middle with this issue. And we, that's this week, gang. And that um, um, leads to the question, if you can, just turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and begin to ask the questions, how do we respond to all this? And what should our place be as a local church. In Romans chapter 12, Paul is basically begging them on who is going to be doing the influencing. So we read in 12.1, I beseech you, that's another way of saying I beg you, I beg you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable service. Huh, why is it reasonable? Because Jesus Christ came, he died for my sins, and if I wouldn't, and he didn't, I would have died in my sins, and I would spend eternity in hell. Do you think it's reasonable for a person now to say, Lord, here I am? I know I can't add anything to your finished work, but it's reasonable for me to do verse two. Don't be conformed by the world. That's what's happening right now. Peer pressure. Don't be conformed by the world. That's not a suggestion, by the way. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God has a model for the church. And it's not Willow Creek and it's not Saddleback. It's Acts chapter two, which I'm gonna have you turn to. 
It hasn't changed. It shouldn't haven't changed since the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost. And if you're in Acts chapter 2, that's exactly what it is. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, the Holy Spirit fell. Peter got up and preached. He said, you guys just killed your Messiah, the one you've been waiting for all along. And when they heard that Jesus came to die for their sins, verse 37 says, when they heard it, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And Peter said to the, they said, what do we do? And Peter said, repent. What is one of the things that Willow Creek wanted to get away from that's negative? Repentance. Don't talk about hell or the need for salvation. That's negative. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people. Not bad, Peter, for your first time preaching. (laughs) Then what? Verse 42 is the model for the church. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. What does that mean? That means they had Bible studies all the time. And fellowship. We do that all the time. Breaking of bread. Remembering the main thing as we did last Sunday in communion and in prayers. Well, after men's prayer yesterday, we did um, uh, Spoon's funeral with mixed emotions. He gets to be home and we have to stay here. (laughs) Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among anybody that had a need. And all of a sudden, they weren't self-centered. They were other-centered. We got a lot. They don't have anything. So their hearts were touched to, to share. And continually daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And notice, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. In other words, it's this simple. Stay in Bible study, prioritize it. Church, Sunday, Wednesday. Participate in communion, in prayer, in fellowship. Those four things. And when I, whenever I read this, I go, I can do that. That's doable. And the thing is, it's not supposed to change. Here is the model of the church. And if you continue in these things, the Lord says, don't worry about the um, multiplication. You're going to grow, and I'm going to be the one who's going to be adding to, I would say, not the church, but his church. Another good place for an amen. You just be Christians. What do Christians do? We study our Bibles, hopefully chapter by chapter, verse by verse. What do we do? Well, we have prayer meetings, and we believe that God is able to answer our prayers and be strong on our behalf. We love the fellowship. You guys are fellowship junkies. Sometimes I gotta kick you out of the church because you won't go home. Because <laughs> you like the fellowship, just kidding. And um, 
and of course, uh, the breaking of bread and communion. All right, let's widen this up here this morning. So, in light of all this, uh, who do we want to be? Turn back with me to Revelation chapter three. Revelation three, again, seven letters to seven churches. There's only two of them that receive no correction. One of them is the church of Smyrna because they were so persecuted. No rebuke. The other one is the church of Philadelphia. I want to point out a couple things about the church of uh, Philadelphia. To the angel of the church, verse seven, in Philadelphia, write, these things says, see who is holy, he who is true, he who has the keys of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. No one can shut it, for you have little strength. I'm gonna stop there. This is not a mega church, okay? They have little strength, but you have kept my word. They were in to the word of God, and you have not denied my name. How did we start our Bible study in John 12? Well, they believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't confess him. And in so doing, even believing in him, by not confessing him, what does the Lord say? If you confess me before men, what? I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you don't confess me, deny me, then I'll also deny you. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews that are not but lie, Indeed, I will make them come and worship at your feet and to know that I have loved you. And because you have kept my command to preserve, I'm also gonna keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell in the earth. Has there ever been a single storm besides the flood that has affected the whole world? Answer, no. Is there going to be one? Answer, yes. This can only apply to the tribulation period. He says, because you've been faithful, you've kept my word, this is what I'm gonna do for you. I'm gonna keep you from the hour of trial. Well, how in the world are you gonna do that? My friends, there has to be a rapture. The, the Lord is gonna take his bride out to a honeymoon, and the honeymoon is not gonna be the wrath of God that's being poured out on planet Earth. So here's a promise that he's given. This is clearly uh, a picture because it says the whole world to be tested. Tested in what? Well, you get a couple guys like Moses and Elijah showing up, preaching the gospel. You got the Antichrist saying, unless you take my mark, you don't eat, you don't buy. Testing, what are you gonna do? Which side are you on? And so he says, behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one will take it. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar and temple of my God and he shall go out no more. I will write on him my new name and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from God and I will write on him my new name. Hmm, that's interesting. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. 
oh, come on, Dwight, do you really have to do all this warning stuff and name names and do all that sort of stuff? I'm tame compared to Paul. What do you mean? Well, turn with me to Acts chapter 20. It's a mandate. What's happening here this morning is a mandate. Acts 20, picking it up. The Bible teaches that in the last days, there's going to be spiritual peer pressure to cause us to compromise, to become like the world. In Acts 20, picking it up in verse 27, Paul says, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I want to be able to say that. Therefore, take heed to yourself and to the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember. Now, I've got to stop just here for a second. And Paul is saying something. He says, I'm not worried about it as long as I'm here because I'm gonna be keep hammering this down so that you don't forget it. But I'm worried about when I'm gone. That after I'm gone, there's gonna be other people that are gonna rise up and are gonna to try to draw the sheep away. Therefore, verse 31, watch and remember that for three years that I, I did not cease to warn you day and night with tears. Can we stop and just let that settle in? We're here for about an hour this morning. Yeah, I dropped some names, but I certainly haven't been warning you day and night for three years with tears, have I? No, he was. What was he concerned about? After he was gone. After he's gone, he says there's gonna rise up those, he sees it's coming, and they're gonna draw away. And he says, I warned you day and night for three years, weeping. I'm not anywhere near weeping. Paul was. And yet, uh, he says, and now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you inheritance among those who are sanctified. So, finally, in closing, what do we do with, with all these things? First of all, we should not be one bit surprised. Um, two last verses, both of them in Timothy. So let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We shouldn't be shocked, but we should be expecting what we see happening right now. 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 5. But know this in the last days. That's where we are now. Perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, or having a form of godliness, but deny its power. From such people turn away. 
And I'm going to stop right there. We should not be surprised at what's happening in the falling away. Paul said right here that it's going to happen. And then we read in verse um, 6 and 7 uh, up here, there's a, the second part of this is confronting apostasy, something that we are um, told blatantly to, to be involved with. And then finally, in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8, we receive a charge. In other words, the Bible study this morning is not a suggestion. Paul, in verse 6, says he knows this is it. These are his final words to, to Timothy. After he, we read verses 1 through 5, he says, I'm out of here. I'm going to be poured out as a drink offering. So here is the Apostle Paul. He says, I charge you. That's a pretty strong word. Timothy, I charge you. Therefore, before God and Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his, at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort, and do it with all long suffering and teaching. Why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. What kind of teachers? Well, let's start a church that tells us what we want to hear, but let's get rid of the stuff we don't want to hear. Do we see that happen? Do we see it happening in 13,000 churches that have been influenced by one church? And um, they have their motives for doing all this. What is it? Get people to come in and let's have more money. That's what this is all about here. Turning their ears away from the truth and turn to fables. But Timothy, you, I want you to be watchful in all things. I want you to endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. And then there's one last thing he says just for you. And that is back in 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, where it says, but as for you, okay, we heard the Bible study, now what do we do? Well, you keep on doing what you're doing. Good place for an amen. Let's read 14 together. But as for you, I want you to continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of knowing from what you have learned. When did he learn them? When he was a child. Who did he learn them from? His parents, not the Sunday school teachers, his parents. In other words, how did the church start when it was young? Well, the four basics, teaching of the word, fellowship, prayer, and communion. He says continue in those things. It'll get you from point A to point B. As for you, continue in the things that you've learned, knowing the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Because all scripture is given by the inspiration of God, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, 
thoroughly equipped in every good work. Good place for an amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. As we see in John 12, people who are more important to be men-pleasers than pleasing you, believing in you, but did not have it in them to be able to confess you before men for the simple reason they wanted to be relevant, they wanted to be a part of what's going on, instead of following the mandate that you clearly laid down. Lord, we see the lateness of the hour. I almost feel like Paul in some sense, knowing that it's late, and um, wanting to give final charges and warnings just to preach the word. Don't change the thing, just stay the course that you've laid out before us. And Lord, you promised that if we would do these things, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, would add to your church daily. And uh, we pray that you would do exactly that, Lord, in these last days. Just help us not to compromise and be influenced by the trends and traditions that we see creeping into our government and into our churches. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort, and do it with all long suffering and teaching. Why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. What kind of teachers? Well, let's start a church that tells us what we want to hear, but let's get rid of the stuff we don't want to hear. Do we see that happen? Do we see it happening in 13,000 churches that have been influenced by one church? And um, they have their motives for doing all this. What is it? get people to come in, and let's have more money. That's what this is all about here. Turning their ears away from the truth and turn to fables. But Timothy, you, I want you to be watchful in all things. I want you to endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. And then there's one last thing he says just for you. And that is back in 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, where it says, but as for you, okay, we heard the Bible study, now what do we do? Well, you keep on doing what you're doing. Good place for an amen. Let's read 14 together. But as for you, I want you to continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of knowing from what you have learned. When did he learn them? When he was a child, who did he learn him from? His parents, not the Sunday school teachers, his parents. In other words, how did the church start when it was young? Well, the four basics, teaching of the word, fellowship, prayer, and communion. He says continue in those things. It'll get you from point A to point B. As for you, continue in the things that you've learned knowing the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Because all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God 
It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped in every good work. Good place for an amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. As we see in John 12, people who are more important to be men-pleasers than pleasing you, believing in you, but did not have it in them to be able to confess you before men for the simple reason they wanted to be relevant, they wanted to be a part of what's going on, instead of following the mandate that you clearly laid down. Lord, we see the lateness of the hour. I almost feel like Paul in some sense, knowing that it's late, and um, wanting to give final charges and warnings just to preach the word. Don't change the thing, just stay the course that you've laid out before us. And Lord, you promised that if we would do these things, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, would add to your church daily. And uh, we pray that you would do exactly that, Lord, in these last days. Just help us not to compromise and be influenced by the trends and traditions that we see creeping into our government and into our churches. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.